As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me to cast an eye over the soccer events of the past few days is a man who would never try to sit on a 1-0 lead for 89 minutes, Graham Rutherford. Graham, how you doing, sir? I'm not bad, Ryan. How are you? Did you have a good Christmas? I had a wonderful Christmas. Thank you very much for asking. A little bit different it was this year, of course. How was it for you? Yeah, a bit different, but um, enjoyable nonetheless. Spent the, the last three days eating too much and uh, basking, in, basking in the warm glow of uh, of Christmas songs. Uh, not just Christmas songs uh, sung by uh, Leonard Slutsky, of course. I don't want a lot for Christmas. Wait, just one thing I need. And I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. That was a clear highlight of the season for me, Graham. That Leonard Slutsky, uh, who I believe is managing Ruben Kazan now, who was at Hull for a little while and, and with the Russia team, of course. That just that just really cast a positive light over this whole 2020, I thought. What did you think of that? Yeah, it's a good way to end the year, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's been a bit of a, a, a year to forget, but that's uh, one moment to remember. Glorious. Yeah. Now, last time we spoke, Graham, I think you mentioned you were tempted to eat your turkey early. Did you save it until Christmas lunch? I did. I did. I managed to uh, to hold off. Um, I, I actually one of a Christmas tradition of mine, which I might have grown out of now that I'm in my uh, late twenties, is that I used to get a kebab on Christmas Day uh, <laughs> at at the pub. Um, no pubs open this year, so no kebabs. So I, I just had uh, my turkey leftovers. What pub is serving a kebab and on Christmas Day as well? Well, no, you get the kebab ordered to the pub, and then the eat oh. the kebab. In the pub, see, so that that is my tradition throughout my twenties. As I say, I feel like maybe as a father now, I've maybe grown out of that a little bit. But I was forced to grow out of it this year. I didn't have a choice. So as I say, turkey leftovers for me. <laughs> there you go. Well, we had a big turkey as well. It's not, of course, it's not necessarily tradition to have a turkey over here because that's the Thanksgiving bird. But we did it here as well, um, and we cooked for about nineteen people. I think we're going to be eating it for three weeks or so. I imagine. 
yeah, that's always the problem, isn't it? You always end up with with more food than you, than you really need. But I guess we shouldn't really complain about that. I have got pigs and blankets. Is pigs and blankets a, a British thing? Or do they have that in America? I think they have. I think we'd call it bacon wrap sausages. Uh, right. They wouldn't use the <laughs> more, phrase, more, yeah. More literal uh, description. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah I've got uh, pigs and blankets to last me into 2021. So that's good. Oh. Glorious, glorious stuff. And speaking of glorious stuff, Graham, before we get into um, games we're going to cover this weekend, little interview with Leo Messi this weekend with La Sexta, the outlet in Spain. Uh, I'll give you a quote here. I'd like to play in the United States and experience life and the league there, but ultimately come back to Barcelona in some capacity. I'm not thinking too far ahead in the short term. Just wanted to see how the season finishes. He's talking, of course, because I'm... I believe in a few days he can start negotiating out of his contract. Very interesting that he brings up the United States at this juncture, though, Graham. What do you think? Could he be an MLS player on the near horizon? And I'm assuming he'd end up at either LA or into Miami. What do you think? I think it's certainly possible. I think what was most interesting about that interview was that I watched it back and and, and really... When I first read the quote, I thought he'd been asked about a move to MLS and just given the diplomatic answer that pretty much every high-profile player gives. Uh, but he actually brought it up himself, which I think reveals a little bit more about his his actual feelings towards a move to the to the states. I don't think it's on it's it's going to happen in the near horizon. I think at the moment with Messi, it seems like it's Barcelona or or possibly. PSG. You mentioned there the the you know the two LA clubs or, or Inter Miami. I actually think the best bet would would be NYCFC, and um, oh. just through the City Football Group chat there has been. Obviously Manchester City were linked with him in the summer. It's a bit of an open secret that there has been contact between City Football Group and Messi. I think maybe we all got the, the wrong end of the stick. We all thought it was Messi to Manchester City. I do wonder whether these talks and this contact has been about Messi one day ending up at Yankee Stadium. How do you think that's going to play out for Messi when he he's, he's there in March at Yankee Stadium on a baseball diamond? I'm not sure. It's not quite southern Spain, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. But, uh, you know, hopefully within the next uh, few years, NYCFC might actually have a stadium that uh, doesn't do- double as a, as a baseball field at some point, <laughs> in the- you would hope. Well, um, Graham, we've, we've discussed a few MLS clubs there. We've ruled out the one with the richest owner, uh, a new club that's starting in 2022. We should probably give that one some thought as well, don't you think? What do you think? Is, is you that know what I'm talking about? Yeah, are, are you maybe uh, starting your own speculation there, your own rumor mill there, Ryan, a little bit? <laughs> I am. I'm just uh, suggesting that you know he might become one of my neighbors here in Charlotte, North Carolina, very soon. Who's to say, Graham? Who's to say? It is a mystery what that man will end up doing next. Anyway, shall we move on to the action? Of course, it was just the, pretty much the Premier League that was running uh, this past weekend. The major, uh, the other major European leagues taking a little uh, festive break. Uh, let's start off, Graham, with Arsenal taking on Chelsea, the Laka-Jaka-Zaka affair that ended 3-1 to Arsenal. Who saw this coming? Well, if you ask most Chelsea fans, apparently they saw it coming. Um, this is uh, The last win that Arsenal had was November 1st. Of course, they were arguably the better team for most of this game, probably at least 80 minutes of it. Meanwhile, Chelsea, they're sitting on three defeats in four. Questions being asked of Frank Lampard, who uh, famously is a Conservative voter, but very happy to donate three points at this time of year to those in need interesting stuff um let's talk about arsenal though graham uh you know they they had a, a slightly beaten up team no gabriel no Partey here uh some younger players being introduced a different formation he's gone for a 4-2-3-1 not the 3-4-3 he's been operating lately uh, Mikel arteta um 
what exactly did they do differently here, do you think? Is it the fact that they sort of shook things up a little bit and they brought in some younger players? We had, you know, Emil Smith-Rowe and, uh, and Martinelli and, and Saka, who plays relatively often, but is still, uh, you know, a teenager. Is it just that they sort of got rid of the deadwood a little bit? Is this a turning point for Arsenal? What did you think? Yeah, I, th- I thought this was this was proof, to be honest, that, that Arteta should have probably thrown in the kids before now. I thought that was the the main difference in the performance that Arsenal put in. Um, I th- obviously, Arteta's hand was forced a little bit by some of the absences you, you mentioned there. Willian was was missing and, and David Luiz as well. So would he have made the, the team selection? He, he did, had those players been available. You you, you probably would say no, given the, how, he's, how he's been uh, setting up his team recently. But this could be the bit of luck that Arteta needs. You know, the have, actually having those players out forced him to go with the kids and Three, three youngsters in particular. You mentioned Saka there. He was the, the best player on the pitch for Arsenal, but you would say mm-hmm. maybe his performance wasn't that um, surprising just because he's he's probably been Arsenal's best player throughout this this, this dreadful run. But then the, the two other youngsters, uh, Emil Smith-Rowe in midfield and, and Gabriel Martinelli were, were, were fantastic. Um, Smith-Rowe, I thought he gave Arsenal something they've, they've been missing all season, just he is he is a he's a natural creative midfielder who occupies that space between the midfield and the attack. And I I, I actually I'm kind of contradicting myself a little bit here by praising him in one aspect and 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 what I'm about to say here. I actually don't know if Smith Rowe is, is that good, but he's he's just a mold of player that Arsenal have been desperately lacking this season. It's not just in the in the in the creativity he's got. It's 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 in the way he was setting the tone for the for the press. He made more ball recoveries. Than anyone else on the pitch, uh, he created more chances when he was on the pitch. Three, and then Martinelli, the way he defended from the front, I, th- I think he made more tackles than than any other Arsenal player. Uh, and I thought those three players, Saka, Smith Rowe, and Martinelli, are the are three players that Arteta now should should probably build around as soon as possible. They're not just the future. I think they've got to be the the, the present for Arsenal. I was really pre- impressed with their performance. Yeah, I was impressed too. I thought Martinelli was, Martinelli was great. You know, a few great shots on, on good form. And it was Emil Smith-Rowe that stood out of, of those three, I'd say, for me, Graham. Um, really good in that number 10 role. Certainly better than some other certain number 10s that um, Arteta has been trying in that position. Uh, Sam Tai tweeting, get it, move it, find space, get it, move it, find space. A big part of the great tempo to Arsenal's performance was Emil Smith-Rowe in that role. Very impressive stuff and uh, getting the assist as well. Uh, yeah, just... Is it is it as simple as saying this is a turning point? They 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 found this fountain of youth, and things are going to be better from here on out. Because there are still surely some rocky roads ahead for this Arsenal team, aren't there? Yeah, I, I still think the best that they can hope for this season, to be honest, is is probably a a top half at best, top eight finish. I mean that that seems ridiculous to say of Arsenal, but we're coming up to the halfway point of the season, and they're and they're they're still quite close to. the the bottom three, of course, they didn't. I don't think they actually moved up a position on the back of this result. Um, I think they're still down in fifteenth place. Um, so a lot of work to to turn around their season. Um, but I think there are definitely uh, green shoots of encouragement here for them. I, I think you know Arteta. There's a lot of the chat around Arteta has been about tactics and strategy and how he is a a disciple of Pep Guardiola. I thought the main difference here from Arsenal was just the energy. And drive mm. that they had and I know that seems very simplistic to say it's down to effort and just running a little bit harder but I did think that was a big factor of this performance from Arsenal um, Smith Rowe even just little things like I was noticing 
one of the things that's been really frustrating watching Arsenal recently, I don't know if you've noticed this, is actually from throw-ins. The number of times they give the ball away from throw-ins just through a lack of options. And Smith-Rowe against Chelsea was was just making himself an option. Every time Arsenal had a throw-in, he was making himself the second or third option. It just allowed Arsenal to... To, to get the ball and control the game a little bit more. And that's a, such a small thing. And I'm not saying Arsenal won the game because they were able to keep the ball from throw-ins, but it's just an example of how I, I just felt there was there was more about their performance, more energy. And and that's the kind of thing that, that Arteta needs to instill in his players because you look at the great tacticians of the game at the moment, you would say Guardiola and Klopp in, in the Premier League. But the, the foundation of what they do with their teams is very much based on commitment and effort and fitness. And those are the things that Arteta needs from his players. And he got that against Chelsea. Yeah, definitely so. And uh, we're talking about the throw-ins. Uh, I don't think Bellerin threw a single foul throw in this game, which is progress of sorts <laughs> as well, I'd say. But over on the other flank, I thought that was where the action was at with Martinelli on that left flank doing very well. Tierney, Tierney tyranny, I think we can call it, over on that other flank as well, causing a lot of trouble for Chelsea on their right side. And um, the player, Graham, who I've never criticised on this show and I've always thought is wonderful, Granit Xhaka. He was very good in this game. Uh, he's sort of... Very incisive, brilliant pass to Tierney, which set up the, uh, the what what became the penalty for the first goal, and obviously banging in a goal of his own as well. Probably the best Xhaka game we've seen for Arsenal, right? Yeah, there isn't much competition for that, uh, <laughs> that unofficial accolade, but yes, it's certainly a lot better from Granit Xhaka. There is a, there is a player in there. I, I mean, I think we can say that. I, I don't think. I think if Arsenal want to go, uh, you know, back to the top of the English game, I, I have doubts whether even at his, at his best, he's he's good enough. But there, there's something in there, and I think having Smith Rowe alongside him to, uh, you know, to kind of provide some drive, it took a little bit of the the pressure of him being the one driving forward, and then obviously Elneny as as a, as a good kind of uh, protector in there as well. So I thought the system suited him a little bit better, and and uh, encouraging for him. And of course, the the goal was was such a, a magnificent. Strike. I mean, for all his faults, we do know he's got that in his locker. And uh, when, when he's getting the basics right, I think that's what he did against Chelsea. He got a lot of the basics right. Then, then his, his his qualities can come to the fore, and and that's what happened with with that amazing free kick. Yeah, we've damned Zaka with faint praise enough, I think, at this point. Should we talk a little bit about Chelsea as well? You could argue that you know they were kind of freak goals, a penalty that may not have been given. We can talk about that as well. Uh, you know, a, a, a free kick as it was, and and Saka's cross, which was a cross come shot we're not quite sure about that sort of you can't really account for all of those but still you know Chelsea did deserve to lose this uh, despite the, the freakish nature nature of the goals was this the worst Lampard performance of of his tenure so far I mean the, the tide seems to have turned him on him on him a little bit in in recent weeks certainly uh, people looking at how much he spent 220 million spent on this team and um, a feeling that he hasn't progressed them very much Graham uh, this team now going into to face Aston Villa, who are quite in form, and then Man City next after that, worrying that you know they they, um, they might not be be putting too many points on the board at this point. It's it was a pretty flat and lethargic performance. There was just whereas Arsenal were banging in the crosses and getting success out of them, there were so many pointless crosses from Chelsea in this game. It felt like um, we can talk get get into more detail, but my headline here was they were missing Ziyech in this lineup. Yeah, they, they they definitely were. I think Ziyech has, be, has become a really important player for them really quickly. Um, and that front three didn't really work against Arsenal with, I think, Pulisic was, was on the right. Um, obviously, mm. he's, he's more suited to, to the left. Um, Werner thought it was another 
poor game for him. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about him uh, a little bit later on. But uh, three defeats in, in in four games for Chelsea. Lampard re- really needs to be careful. This doesn't become a, a slide because, as you say, they do have a, a, a few difficult games on the horizon, and it could be his his job on the line. I mean, Chelsea have a a history, or they don't wait around for for managers to come good. They will make a change, even if it is. Frank Lampard, I get that sense that they, they will make a change. Of course, um, Thomas Tuchel is is the the big name. Obviously, it was Pochettino for a long time. It looks like he's gone to PSG, but now Tuchel's the one kind of um, putting pressure on Premier League managers. Um, I thought Lampard's comments after this game were quite interesting. He said, um, quote, not good enough on the basics, sprints, pressing, running, speed of pass, and trying to play all the basics were wrong. That's he was very scathing on his players, and and he does that quite often. He frequently goes in hard on 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 his own players, and and regardless of whether it was justified after this performance, I do wonder how that plays in a modern dressing room. I think mm. Lampard obviously came through um, quite a while ago, and and even his peak years feels like a different era of of the game, and and so I'm I'm not sure how the modern football player takes to that sort of public criticism. It also prompts the easy response. Well. What about Lampard? Does he take no responsibility in this performance and 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 the way that Chelsea approached this game? I thought the the pressing was really slack. That I thought that it was most notable in in the number of times Rob Holding was getting the ball from at the back at Arsenal and and really just had time to 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 pick his passes ahead of him. He had three four options. There was there was no real pressure pressure on him. And and I think the the third Arsenal goal kind of came from one of those passes out from the back from Holding. So. A, a, a poor performance. I think Lampard, is, they're eighth in the Premier League now. Chelsea, they were probably expected to be title challengers um, and they're nowhere near that mark at the moment. So I think criticism and the pressure he's under is, is entirely justified. It's funny that how the, the, the flow of criticism criticism comes towards Lampard. I, I read a tweet here from Gary Hayes, who used to work for Chelsea. Uh, you'll find him on Twitter. He's sort of defending Frank Lampard, saying that he inherited a patchwork squad that needed freshening up. Uh, he did so during a transfer ban, and Chelsea finished in the top four last year. Despite that, um, he's, averagely, he's dramatically reduced the average age of the squad, and he says that money spent is irrelevant after 15 games and no pre-season. Uh, sort of making the point that you shouldn't expect instant results from this team and that Lampard were played above par last season, which I all think are are fair and valid points, Graham. Mm -hmm. But also, they are kind of excuses for what's happening right now, aren't they? Because the other facts are that they just lost 3-1 to uh, a a very, you know, an Arsenal side that was struggling a lot and they're simply not doing well enough this season with all that money that's been spent on them. And if if you look at it objectively, if Lampard wasn't a Chelsea hero... He wouldn't be anywhere near that team, would he? You know, he might be getting a call from Russia right now. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but it just seems like, but to me, it seems like he's not going to be the long-term appointee at Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, everything that you mentioned there, Gary Hayes tweeted, I think is is entirely fair. Just, I think it's it's fair that Lampard is under criticism and under scrutiny right now. I, I wouldn't say it's at the point where he should be sacked. Um, I think those two things can be can be true. Um, mm. At the same time, I, I I do wonder. I mean, at the summer, you know, not to not to big myself up or anything, but I, I did think the summer signings would actually give Lampard more problems than solutions, just because of the expectation that was that was placed on him to build a a title winning team with a lot of players who I didn't think it, it seamlessly fit it fit into his team, and I think we have seen that with the two biggest name additions which are um you know Timo Werner 
who has no goals in his last 10 games. He's had 20 shots in his last 10 games, eight big chances as they're statistically classified, no goals. Um, this was a really poor performance from him. He was he was hooked at half time. He's been playing out on the left, which doesn't really suit him. And obviously that's Christian Pulisic's best position. Lampard's going with Abraham, uh, Tammy Abraham up front, um, which you'd maybe say is, is, a, is, a, is a better position for Werner. But for whatever reason, Lampard is is using him out on the left. As I say, it's not really working. And 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 the other one is 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 Kai Havertz, who only got mm. sixty minutes off the bench here. He he doesn't have a role in this Chelsea team. And at the time, I think there was an acceptance um, even in the summer that Chelsea had only signed him because they had the opportunity to. You know, this was a generational talent, a, a player who, on the basis of his talent, could could win a Ballon d'Or. That's how good he is. And Chelsea felt just because of the way the market was, there was no real competition from, they had to go and get him. But now we're seeing the flip side of that where there's no place for him in this team. He is he is an attacker, Kai Havertz. If you've watched Leverkusen, he's a, he's a hybrid sort of midfielder, um, forward sort of player, but he is attack-minded. He's not a central midfielder as Lampard has, has, has played him, but where does he fit into that Chelsea attack? I, I do actually have a suggestion. I, I think he... I think he he I think Lampard should maybe try and play Havertz as as through the middle as a center forward and drop Abraham out of that out of that side. Obviously, that makes it difficult for Werner because I'm not sure we, where he fits in with Ziyech and Pulisic. It might be that he drops out as well. But Kai Havertz, I watched him for Leverkusen last season when Kevin Volland was was injured around the lockdown and he played as a as a false nine or a, as a center forward and he, and he was brilliant. One of the things about Havertz is he's great in the air. And Chelsea are getting none of that by using him on the, on the left side of, of a midfield three as they have this season. So that's one suggestion. But even that doesn't feel like a, a, a great solution. And um, those two players epitomise a lot of the problems that Chelsea are having and just finding the right team at the moment. Yeah, I think that's an important note that Lampard does kind of have an embarrassment of riches, certainly in the final third. Um, a tweet here which amused me from TSS listener Shreyas Romani. I'll read it to you, Graham. Buying Werner and Havertz with Lampard as manager is the equivalent of buying your parents a PS5 for Christmas and then trying to use a PS5 just as a DVD player because they don't <laughs> play video games, then going back to their old DVD player because the PS5 is too complicated to use. It's a, it's a good line, but there is a message in there. And Lampard talking about the basics and the, the team not executing the basics there are some sort of basics that Lampard's not executing here in you know play your wingers on the wings and play your players on the correct flanks that seems like a basic to me having Werner out there as a winger as you say looking pretty lost and Pulisic on the incorrect flank that's a basic to me to, to, to not do that and you know there, there are other options you could add Callum Hudson-Odoi out on the right instead Werner through the middle where Tammy Abraham is you know uh, doesn't necessarily contribute well to the build-up off the ball movement isn't as great and I, I do have, I have, I've said many times on this show, um, and I got, I got cast to uh, hot take Siberia when I mentioned that Timo Werner, I didn't think he was a great signing for Chelsea back when he was signed. But he just, I just, don't, I don't like his decision making, and he's not being helped, obviously, being put out on the left there, but I just think he's not the complete forward. And I think that's very interesting. You mentioned putting Havertz up top in the middle as well. That, that might work as well. But it seems like to me, there's lots of puzzle pieces here, Graham, and they're not, they're being jammed into the incorrect slots by Lampard at the moment. So that's something that's certainly going to need to be addressed. By the way, when I mentioned Abraham there, I've got a little TSS exclusive here. My brother, um, who has a fancy job and does well for himself, lives on Tammy Abraham Street. And apparently his Christmas decorations aren't very good. TSS exclusive there for you. You need to do better, Tammy. I would have thought a Premier League footballer, I mean, do they not have people to do that sort of thing for them? Or is COVID restrictions preventing 
people coming. Is that is that actually the real story here? Premier League footballers' Christmas decorations are not as good this year because COVID restrictions <laughs> mean someone else can't do them for them. Well, that's the thing, Graham. I actually have extra detail here. He has he has one of those professional companies that does it for him. And my brother says that people who have done it on their own have better ones than him this year. So blame blame the people he's hiring. I'd say. Yeah, he needs to get on Craigslist and uh, and uh, find some people with better reviews. I think. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But I, I think the, uh, the Chelsea were doomed as well, Graham. I think from the start of this game because um, Lampard referred to Chilwell as Chile. I'm not sure I could get behind that. No, that's almost as bad as Waza for Wayne Rooney. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, a difficult path ahead for Chelsea. As I mentioned, they've got in-form Aston Villa and Manchester City up on the docket. Things looking up for Arsenal because they couldn't look much further down. Shall we move on, Graham, to another game? How about we go to Leicester, who uh, took on Manchester United and Archbishop Archbishop Desmond 2-2 was the result here. Um, This was the undrawables against away FC. Leicester, who hadn't had a draw at this point, and Manchester United, who hadn't lost away at this point. And uh, both those streaks being broken in this game uh, with the 2-2 result a really really good game for the neutral this one was Graham wasn't it yeah I thought it was I thought it was a, a really entertaining game I United at the moment are an entertaining watch um, not sure whether that will make them title challengers but um, yes a good a good game for the neutral as you say yeah, and just uh, very impressive with Leicester. A couple of players I wanted to pick out, and it's very easy to pick out in Didi because I think, as you mentioned here, he could probably slot into most top sides at the moment. He was super, superb in this game. Um, you know, lots of lots of breakup play and stopping Bruno in his tracks wherever possible. Uh, Fafana was brilliant as well, stopping Daniel James. Um, you know, lots of really good decision-making. Leicester, very, very clinical in this game. They basically scored from their two chances, didn't they? <laughs> Yeah, they did, and 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 that's actually been a, a common theme for for Leicester, I think, throughout the season. As they they are pretty clinical, obviously Jamie Vardy. Um, I still think Jamie Vardy doesn't get the credit he deserves. I think he is very much a top three striker in the Premier League. He's one of the best strikers in in Premier League history for for my money. I know he hasn't played for you would say a quote unquote elite club. He, you know, Leicester obviously won the title, but you know, they're, they're not at that top level in terms of size. So he maybe doesn't get the credit because of that. But mm. he, I was going to say he took his chance well here, but actually it was a bit of a deflection off uh, Axel two and Zabi, but nonetheless, he was, he was in the position to, to, uh, to create that opportunity. Well, let's talk about that goal. That was the equal late equalizing goal uh, that, that got Leicester the point. Um, there was some interesting defending going on here, not necessarily from Twanzebe, who got the unfortunate deflection from Jamie Vardy's uh, um, sort of first touch shot. Uh, there was, uh, you know, Fred and Luke Shaw both going to mark the same player when James Justin was coming in on that flank. We had Maguire sitting off of Ayozi, uh to mark a random patch of space. Where I don't know what he was doing. Maguire didn't have a great game in general. But when that ball came in for Vardy, Graham, there was, I freeze-framed and there were six red shirts in the box. Nobody marking Jamie Vardy, who, as you mentioned, top three striker there. Seems like they should have done something about that. <laughs> yeah, you would say so. I actually found this goal really interesting from a, a an analytical point of view. Um, there was a lot of talk after after the match about Manchester United lacking defensive structure. I, I actually disagree with that a little bit. What I would say is this to me looked like if you look at when the the, the ball comes into the box from from the right side um, from Perez, I think it was. It, mm. Manchester United's four. You've got four players there or three players in in a a, a completely flat line. 
to me it almost looked like they were they were too structured and no one took responsibility and recognized the danger and that to me is a lack of in-game intelligence that's someone and also maybe leadership as well someone who's not taking the responsibility to say I, I need to break this structure here to follow Jamie Vardy who's pulled away from me it's 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 a lack of confidence as I say a lack of in-game intelligence and actually I think that's the the issue with Manchester City's defense is I think their defenders are adequate enough but they don't have anyone who is smart enough for me to recognize danger and not just for them to react to danger but to inform others about danger I don't see that in that Manchester United defense um I, I don't see anyone who's particularly vocal either I know Harry Maguire is, is the is the captain he wears the captain's armband but I think we all know Bruno Fernandes is kind of the the, the natural leader in that team so Mm. If I were Manchester United, that's the one area I think. I don't think Manchester United are actually that far away. I think they're one or two players away from being a serious, serious team. But that is number one at the top of the list for me is not just a good defender, but a leader and an intelligent defender who can recognise these moments when they happen. And, and against Leicester, that Vardy goal, no one no one recognised that happening as, as, as it was unfolding. Yeah, that Baye and Maguire pairing didn't quite uh, cover themselves in glory. I think it was Baye who lost Vardy. And as I mentioned, Maguire sort of drifting off into no man's land, uh, caught, caught, caught in the middle there. Um, but it, I mean, we can give credit to the McTominay and Fred screen in front of them, though. They were excellent, weren't they? Yeah, and that's been one of the, the success stories of this of this run um, from Manchester United. I think I, I mentioned it on the podcast last week and I tweeted it again. So uh, sorry for repeating myself. But Scott McTominay is definitely still growing. I think you you tweeted me back saying that we think it's we we think it's Marcus Rojo and Juan Mata on top of each other in a big trench coat, um, but yeah he's he's been in an excellent form. Um, he's kind of the midfielder Manchester United have been lacking for a, for a little while. He, he, he protects the back four and also drives the ball for, forward. Fred is is good in um, in tight spaces. He's good against a high press, which has been a, a fault of Nemanja Matic. I think he's a decent player, but he struggles against teams that press high on him. And also Paul Pogba, I think, struggles against teams that press high on him. So um, those two players have given Manchester United something that they were previously lacking. Yeah, and with your McTominay growing theory, maybe he's just growing in stature in your mind and it's it's taking physical form for you. Have you considered yeah. that? Yeah, but mainly because Scotland have qualified for the Euros, of course. Nothing to do with Manchester United. That's why he's grown in stature. <laughs> Precisely so. Uh, can we talk about someone else who's growing, uh, who has very much grown in stature and is, uh, is shining for Manchester United, but not necessarily getting the minutes? Enison Cavani, who uh, was superb in this game when he came on. Why doesn't he play every week? Because when I ask that question, obviously the, the obvious response is, you know, he's not fit. He can't play a full 90 minutes. He's 33. He's the same age as Jamie Vardy. He's got this great soccer IQ. He always raises play up. His movement helps players like Marcus Rashford. Why isn't he getting more than just these cameos, Graham? I think I think you're right to be sceptical of the, the fitness argument. I mean, have you ever checked Edison Cavani's Instagram? Makes me feel very lazy. You actually run quite a lot. So you're, you're probably feeling quite quite good about yourself checking his Instagram. It makes me feel terrible about myself that Edison Cavani uh, you know, is, is so fit at, at 33. So I don't think there's much in that. I, I, had, a, I had a think about this because... I felt like I had to come up with some some form of answer, and the the, the best I can come up with is that Anthony Martial is is I think really important to the passing triangles that Man United have in the final in the, in the attacking third. So I think it's a bit of an underrated aspect of of his game. 
I think if you look at the way Man United construct attacks, there's a lot of quick passing, interchange, and it's, it's primarily it primarily involves Martial, who likes to drop off and then spin in behind. And it, he's got a good understanding with Fernandez and, and Rashford in particular. So the best mm. that I can come up with is, is maybe Edison Cavani doesn't have that, that understanding with those two players, that yes, he is a goal scorer, and yes, he is... He gives them more cutting edge, and Anthony Martial recently has missed a lot of really good chances. He needs to step up a little bit in that regard. But just in the way that Mane construct attacks, I think maybe he's a different player to Martial, and maybe Solskjaer is wary of of disrupting that too much. Given that you know Mane's attack is working, it's that that's the thing that, that they, they're best at is attacking. That's not where they need to make too many changes. If it, it's the it's the defense that really needs focus, so that's the best I can come up with. But I do feel. It's maybe a matter of time until Edson Cavani is seen as that that starting number nine for United. Yeah, I think I think you might be right there because, and that's a solid analysis there, Graham. But you look at Edson Cavani coming on in the seventy fifth minute. Four minutes later, they get the uh, they, they take the lead again in this game, basically through Edison Cavani and his superb work. He comes short to receive that ball from I think it was Fred and pushes forward with it, and that that beautiful through ball to Bruno Fernandez to get that goal to make it two one. Just the link up play there was just superb. His intelligence to move and uh, to receive the ball, just wonderful stuff from him. So I hope we see a few more minutes than the odd 15 minutes here and there from him. Um, and he was he was labelled the worst signing of the window by The Athletic, if I'm not mistaken, and coming in as a free agent, which was an interesting move. But hey, he certainly proved them wrong on that count. Um, and I don't know, what else do we want to say about this game? Uh, Dan- Daniel James had a good one, didn't he? I thought he was, he was very good again. He, he sort of won the throw in for the first goal, put the ball into Bruno for it. And uh, yeah, a decent one from him too. He was he was okay. I th- I wouldn't I wouldn't um, go as far as saying that he had he had a great game. I thought he was much more effective against Leeds, and I did wonder whether Solskjaer had bitten off a bit too much, uh, bitten more bitten off more than he could chew by picking him for two big games in in, in a row. Um, I th- I thought maybe the the Leicester City press gave him a few more problems. Obviously, mm. Leeds United tend to go man for man, so he had a bit more space to run into. And he did have a bit of space against Leicester. And he's, he's a very good outlet to relieve pressure and just get minated up the pitch. But Leicester tend to, tend to swarm opposition players. And, and I just don't think James is, is, is good enough on the ball to, to, to really handle that. Um, and I thought there was there was maybe a bit more composure to United's play once... Um, it was Pogba, I think, who came on for for, for Daniel James in, in the second half. So he, he does have a role to play in this minor eight team. I think in the summer, he, a lot of people thought he was finished at Old Trafford. He was there was a talk, there was talk of a move to to Leeds United. I think even in recent mm. weeks, there's been talk of a loan move. But I think he's proven his worth both in in the Leeds game and and in this game as well. Well, after splitting the points here, we have Leicester in third in the league. Uh, Man United uh, just behind, one point behind in fourth, but with a game in hand. If you had to put your house on it, Graham, who's going to finish higher out of these two teams? I would bet Manchester United. I'm actually quite high on Manchester United at the moment. I think that the I said last week, I thought the Champions League, the, the tough Champions League group that they had kind of warped the, the progress that they've made. They look like... To me, they look like a better team than last season. I guess that's all you can really ask for is season-on-season progress. Um, I think they're nine, they're nine points better off at this stage than they were last season. They're 18 points closer to the top of the Premier League table than they were at this stage last season, which obviously is a combination of them playing better and Liverpool not being as good. Um, 
this was this could have been a statement win for them. I think that's where the disappointment is. They had the opportunities to, to win this, but I I fancy my United to finish. I would say a distant second. I don't think they're really going to challenge for the title, but I am quite high on this my United team, and that's not to say Leicester won't have a good season. I think there's top four candidates, but I, I think my United have the edge. Oh, the old Liverpool Man United 1-2 taking us back a decade or so. I like the sound of that. But it is a bonkers uh, table at the moment. Aston Villa down in seventh uh, with two games in hand. If they were won those two games in hand, they'd be up in second where Everton currently are, which that feels like a very first or second season of the Premier League kind of vibe that's going on at the top of the table there. So it is very much all to play for. Um, we will see how that turns out. I think I agree with you there saying Man United will finish above Leicester. But Leicester, uh, you could certainly see them take third place or maintaining third place as it were in this league but who knows it's been a crazy season and it will continue to be we're going to talk about a couple more games very shortly but first a word from our sponsors looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All righty, Graham, let's get into it. Liverpool against West Brom. People expecting Liverpool to take three points from West Bromwich Albion in this one. They split them, 1-1 the result here. A big Sam masterclass. Sam Allardyce has now won more points at Anfield since April 2017 than all big six teams combined. Wowzers, what did you make of this one? <laughs> you beat me to that stat. I've got that one in my notes as well. What a stat that is. Incredible. I didn't actually yeah. realise he was the last man at Premier League manager to 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 lead a team uh, to a win at, at, at Anfield. So, um, yeah, there would have been a symmetry to it if, if he had uh, pulled off the shock here. But, yeah, Big Sam's back, isn't he? Um, I, I, I didn't see this one coming, though, watching the first half. I mean, Liverpool were utterly utterly dominant I mean really really dominant and not just in an Arteta sort of way of controlling the ball and they, they had chances they really should have been out of sight um, and then the second half was like a, 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 a complete, I was going to say a completely different game but almost it, it wasn't really a completely different game it just all of a sudden West Brom had a bit of intent and um, they were still 
sitting pretty deep. But if you look at the average positions, um, they were so much more aggressive in that second half. They were getting uh, players forward. I thought Carlin Grant was giving um, Reese Williams uh, a lot of problems uh, uh, with long balls over the top. There was one chance in particular where Grant got in behind him and, and probably mm. should have actually scored. Alison Becker coming to the rescue for Liverpool. But um, yeah, big Sam's back, baby. He is indeed. Yeah, Grant almost taking the win there, as you mentioned. I think that was about the 70th minute when that one happened. But it was it was essentially a 4-6-0 formation from Big Sam. But as you say, in the second half, they were probably the better team in that. And they, they stretched it to a 4-5-1, I think we can call it. But uh, they certainly were sitting super, super deep. And you can see that in, in many, uh, many of the uh, passages of play. But they were also were very aggressive. As you mentioned, if you look at the kickoff, they had five players on the halfway line ready to sort of run for a long ball. And that very much set the tone of what Big Sam was trying to do in this game. Sitting very deep, but also very, very great at countering. And he was asked, Sam Allardyce, after the game, what was the most important thing? And he said, organisation. And to, to be able to instill that kind of organisation, Graham, after just a few days at the club... That's, that seems almost unlikely, doesn't it? It must be yeah. something else apart from organisation. He must bring something else that he's done there because he can't. He kind of organised things. You know, some some managers take years to do that kind of thing. He kind of done it in a couple of days, surely. Yeah, I mean, look, we we all. I think we're all guilty of 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 mocking Sam Allardyce a little bit. I mean, even in the way that I, you know, I I say like we all say Big Sam is is a little bit mocking in in, in that, but. You, you have to give him real credit. I mean, and just admire the the, the plug and play quality that he has. I mean, as you say, only at the club for a matter of days. I think I read that he'd had two training sessions that weren't even full training sessions because obviously at this time of year you don't want to overload the players too much. On top of, of on top of that, this is a a team that under Slavin Bilic was was built to play attractive possession based football that won West Brom promotion last season. Now, obviously, we hadn't really seen it this season because of the, the step up in quality, but that's the that's the approach this team was 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 built with, and yet he gets this sort of well drilled defensive performance out of out of a team almost instantly. I mean, they had twenty two percent of of possession, but they were very very narrow and and they made themselves really really difficult to play through. They had plenty numbers around Liverpool every time that they had the ball about. 25 30 30 yards out and and no quick passes through through um through the, the the low block as Liverpool tend to do there was just too many bodies in there so as you say there j- just to get that sort of performance and that commitment out of that group of players after only a few days it, it is really quite incredible and and look he's still got a lot of work ahead of him West Brom need to survive um and I still think that's up in the air even after this performance I think it's going to be really difficult with that that squad of players but Sam Allardyce deserves a lot of credit and certainly has worth um, at this level of the game. He certainly does. This is the epitome of new manager bounce, isn't it? I think you, you go to Anfield and you, you know, you're only one nil down at halftime to a team who beat Crystal Palace seven nil last week. So I think full credit to Sam Allardyce. As you say, he is mocked, but he certainly can get the job done. And it remains to be seen whether he will get the job done ultimately that he's been employed to do. Not to not to uh, play pretty soccer, maybe that Stan Bilic might have done, but to uh, keep this team up. So we shall see how that one pans out. But what's interesting to me, Graham, is this was another example of Liverpool um, facing a less expansive side and coming into issues. This was the same result as they got against Fulham. 
a very different game and a very different style, I would say, to the Fulham team that faced them and, and managed to get a point out of them as well. But Fulham will stay very compact. They kept a high line and they pressured Liverpool with their own high line. Really high energy stuff and creating those chances on the break. There were some of those elements in what West Brom did, maybe in, the, in terms of the aggression. But it was a little bit more different. It was more just about sitting deep and, uh, you know, sticking it out and trying to get that, that equaliser late on, which is exactly what they did am I, am I on the right path there do you think in, in terms of they were they were a little bit different approaches that Fulham and West Brom took here yeah cer- certainly um you know where this was much more of a I think a back to the wall job from from West Brom there'll be concern in both performances from, from Klopp just um from this one how they were unable to to break down a team that sits deep I mean I, I know I've just given Allardyce credit but there was there was slightly more of a the, with the Fulham game, there was more of a, I guess, a kind of fluke element in that Fulham just found a level of performance that they probably haven't found this season so far. Whereas West Brom, they've they've given a, a template that other teams could seek to replicate. You know that, that other teams could feasibly do that against Liverpool, and and so Klopp might be worried about that. I I, I think we after the Fulham game, I I think I said I, I struggle to verge into hysteria with Liverpool at the moment just because I I, I think they're going to get these sort of results. Actually, the past two seasons, have they, they were more freakish than what we've seen this season. You know, you go back to previous title races, I'm thinking of, you know, peak Ferguson, Man United teams, or maybe not so much Mourinho, Chelsea, but Wenger, Arsenal, or whatever, they, they, they would drop points to relegation-threatened teams on occasion. I mean, I remember Man United losing a game to Derby County in, when, in, in which I think Kenny Miller scored a goal. And, you know, the, these things do happen. But I think we're all accepting that this season nobody's going to get close to 100 points. And so this is actually more normal. This is going to happen. I still think Liverpool are the best team in the country. I think there are some concerns over injuries, which is the one thing that that could really stop them this season. I'm, I'm not convinced. I know he's a young a young lad and he, he might improve. I'm not totally convinced by Reese Williams. I thought he got caught over, but caught by balls over the top a number of times. Um, Joe Matip coming off in this game is, is a big blow for Liverpool. He's He's been available for just eight of Liverpool's 15 Premier League games this season. Um, last season, he was available for just 16 out of 38. So that's not the injury record of a player that you can really depend on. And, and I just wonder whether Liverpool might go into the, the January window looking for a, a new centre-back. Yeah, this is uh, the, the third anniversary of signing Virgil van Dijk as well, if I'm not mistaken. It was this week. Was it three years ago or two years ago? It'll be two years ago, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, so they may dip in, dip their toes back into the January window. We shall, uh, we shall see about that. But I think the point was that, you know, after that win against Crystal Palace, there was a lot of banter about, oh, this Liverpool team are unstoppable. They're going to win this league by a long way. But results like this, as you say, Graham, are going to keep coming up. And they have done a couple of times in the last few weeks. And they, they did nearly win this one. We got, uh, I think it was Oxlade Chamberlain nearly got the winning header around the 90th minute mark with this one. And they did have some, you know, nice quality off the ball movement throughout this game. But they just didn't create, I think, was the problem. They just looked a bit, a little bit lethargic. The, the fullbacks weren't bombing on quite as much as one would hope. A little bit subdued up front as well were Liverpool. But um, there was something that was broken down on the NBC coverage out here, Graham, which was the Mane goal. Just it just it just epitomised the breathtaking speed and movement that Liverpool have 
in order to create and to break through these defensive walls, which Liverpool, uh, West Brom putting up a big wall here, sitting as deep as they were. But you had Matip with that fast ball in to Mane on his chest and he takes the shot. A, a great goal. But it's the off-the-ball movement that made that goal, Graham. It was, it was Salah coming to the ball, pulling his marker away, which made space for Wijnaldum to run into. Mane's marker then moves over to Wijnaldum to try and cover him. And that is the exact point when Matip plays the ball at laser speed uh, <laughs> onto Mane. And it's just, it was over in a flash. And I think this it's just so, so hard to defend against that. And when they've got players with that kind of awareness, with that kind of movement and that kind of intelligence, that that's just, you can't beat that quality no matter how how deep you sit in this league. Yeah, and, and I know you mentioned that the movement there, and, and there is obviously an element of that of pushing and pulling the, the, the defence to create the space. But to be perfectly honest, when you watch this go back, there isn't a great deal of space. It's not like there was a, there was a huge tunnel through the centre of West Brom's defence. I mean, I think it was a, a Jahi that, that, that slightly gets pulled away from the marker. But as you say, the, the ball is lasered into Manny's chest. He controls it and then not just controls it, instantly realises that he then has to swivel, turn, and then get the shot away on the sort of the stretch volley all in, all in one movement. And Allardyce must have just watched that go and, and just think, well, what can I do about that? <laughs> you know, there's a, there is a, a slight uh, chink in the armour a little bit where th- there's a little bit of space, but really it's unrealistic to expect every single pocket of space to be closed up for 90 minutes and, and Liverpool mm. were just ruthless in, in scoring that opening goal. They were indeed. And Semi Ajayi, by the way, pretty ruthless with the equaliser, using Fabinho as some kind of ladder, putting both his hands on Fabinho's face, it seemed, to uh, to get that goal. But hey-ho, it was a 1-1 um, uh, Sam Allardyce masterclass at Anfield. Let's go to one final game for our roundup, Graham. Let's go to Molyneux. Um, I've I don't know why I pronounce it like that. Molyneux, a Wolves against Tottenham. This one also won one. Um, Tottenham have now lost eight points from winning positions in this uh, in, in this in this league campaign. A big opportunity after that Liverpool draw came through. They did not take it. Um, the, the, the big narrative here, Graham, is about. Um, Jose Mourinho's tactics you know we know he likes to score early and try and sit on a lead didn't quite get a big enough lead for that to take hold in this in this game and the presiding feeling of Tottenham fans is that Mourinho's tactics are wonderful when you win and when you get that 2-1 win or that 2-0 win not so hot to watch when you're holding on for 89 minutes and it's uh, the, the, the talk of dinosaur tactics comes in again doesn't it yeah and I, I don't want to come across um, in any way spiteful at all here to, to Spurs fans but I think you have to take the the rough with the smooth with Mourinho I mean that this is the the deal your club has made with uh I was gonna say the deal with the devil but that's maybe that's maybe going a bit far um <laughs> but yeah this is the deal that Tottenham have made is that yeah Mourinho might get you closer to trophies yep he he he, he might win it win a title although those chances are maybe fading now um, but you're going to have to go through games like this. You're going to have to go through performances like this. And I, I think after this game, there is a little bit of um, reflection going on for a lot of people. I've certainly had to think about w- whether I got it wrong with Spurs um, just because they started the season so well. We, we we said that the attritional nature of this season would, would suit Spurs under, under Mourinho. And I think there was some logic behind that. But did we maybe get that wrong? Because Spurs looked pretty much gassed in the second half of, of this game and, and and it's been a similar story in, in a number of games over this 
this festive period? Um, would Mourinho rotate his squad a bit more if it was stronger? Is that is that the issue here? Um, you know, I think Mourinho has to reflect a little bit because at the moment this isn't working. I, I, Spurs have dropped nine points this season with goals conceded in the last ten minutes of matches, which is the most of any side in the Premier League this season. Which is 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 not the the sign of a team chasing the title, is it? Um, so. I think Mourinho has to make a few changes after this. Um, I thought he got his subs wrong in this game. That didn't help. Um, and, and Spurs really, um, this is a, a dark moment for them and they need to react well from it. Yeah, dropping points from winning positions is exactly the issue because you ultimately cannot win a title if you can't kill games like this. That's what champions do. And to, to, to Mourinho's credit, I don't think he parked the bus for 80 or 90 minutes here. It was just they didn't have the drive to create. And he, the substitutes he made, I think it was Lamella and Bergwijn coming on, they're not defenders. He wasn't trying to sort of pack it and do a, a big Sam 4-6-0 or, or anything like that. But it was interesting. He said after the game, we didn't, and Mourinho said, we didn't have the ambition or desire to go for more. And the we in that sentence is doing a lot of work there, is it not, Graham? It's it's the I, I think he should be saying there, isn't it? He's, he's, he's putting a lot on his players there who admittedly could have given more in this game, but they're ultimately being told what to do by the big man. Yeah, especially by Mourinho. I mean, there are some managers who do leave it up to uh, the players a lot, um, but Mourinho is, is very much someone who sets out a clear game plan for his players to follow. It wasn't so much in the in the players he brought on that I thought were were questionable from Mourinho, but more the players that he brought off. I mean, watching this game, it seemed to me that um, Tangi and Dombele and uh, Sergio Reguilón were, were the two players that were giving um, Tottenham forward thrust. They were the players that, especially and Dombele, I mean, there were a few moments in this game where you think, how on earth has he still got the ball at his feet? You know, he's, 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 he's sprinted 40 yards up the pitch, he's shaken off. There was one run in particular where I think he plays it out to Reguilón and Reguilón has a shot which is saved by uh, Ray Patricio. Um, <laughs> it was almost comical with, uh, I think, two Wolves players in the centre circle, you know, bashing into each other and falling over as they're trying to tackle him. Um, mm. But really, he, he was he was the player giving Spurs an outlet. Um, you know, Son and, and Kane really didn't do much in this game, so it really was on on his shoulders. And as I say, Reguilón as well down the left side. And those were the two players who came off. And 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 I, I felt at the time that was a, a strange decision because Endombele we know has had issues with his fitness. I don't think he's played many, if any, full games this season. But to me he didn't seem to be waning in the game. He still seemed to be performing his duty well. And so I, I think that was a strange decision that actually cost Spurs in the end because the last 20 minutes in particular, it just seemed that Spurs were sitting deep waiting for that equaliser to happen. Yeah, I think game management is a big part of the uh, the frustration here. There's that quote that um, and insanity is doing the same thing multiple times and expecting different results. And that seems to be a, a nutshell of what Spurs are doing. You know, this is just like a carbon copy of what happened in that Crystal Palace game. And they gave away points at the death in the Liverpool game as well. They just, the, that, this defence, it's not, you know, Mourinho's peak Chelsea defence. It's not good enough. It's good, but it's not good enough to sit that long and to, to hold on to a 1-0 ultimately. And, and in terms of the game management, I think you've, you've hit a couple of nails on the head there. Reguilón being taken off you know why he was he was so important in this game and Dombele who didn't look like he was struggling with fitness is never allowed to finish a game meanwhile you know Harry Winks is left on mm, not sure about that Harry Kane being left on he looked he looked like he shouldn't be going the full 90 at this point but he was left on regardless it's it's a, a lot of interesting decisions being made here and I, I don't know having Winks in there in the first place I mean maybe it couldn't have been helped at this point but 
It seems like Jose Mourinho could have done a lot of things differently here and maybe should wane from his formula a little bit more to try and get some results. Try and not stop the same thing happening over and over again. Yeah, and I mean, Wolves, Wolves away is a game where if you're trying to hold on for eight to nine minutes, it's it's not going to happen. And as we saw, that that it didn't happen. I mean, Wolves are, are a team with ambitions of, you know, top six or top eight themselves this, this season. And, and they've got a lot of attacking quality. So, um misguided from Mourinho he's not often one for much self-reflection he kind of sticks with his with his tried and tested ways but I think this should be a little bit of a wake-up call look this season the way this season is I'm not going to count out Spurs just yet I think even after this poor run there they they could still end up in the title mix with you know two or three wins in a a row um, into the new year but Mourinho does need to learn from the mistakes that he and his players have made in, in the last few weeks. Yeah, definitely so. And let's give credit to Wolves, of course. This is a good reaction after that uh, Burnley result they had. Um, you know, switching up formation because they didn't have Willy Bolly. So they had a back four. And it's basically two teams switching formations for this one, which was interesting. And we had this extra attacker in Fabio Silva, who was brilliant. He does look like he belongs in a mid-2000s indie band, but um, doing a really <laughs> good job up top for, uh, for for Wolves in this one. And we had more game time for Owen Otosoe as well, the US midfielder in this. So plenty of positives for Wolves in this one. But uh, yeah, just I think the headline is Tottenham simply not not performing to the sum of their parts in this game, and I, I'm I'm not going to rule them out either in the title race, uh, but because you can't rule out anyone at this point, but you just have to kill these kind of games, and maybe Jose Mourinho needs a, a more fortitude in defence. You know his system does rely on defensive organisation and discipline, and there was time and time again where. Wolves were trying to poke that last ball through to Silva to try and get past the back line. And Spurs did an excellent job. Eric Dyer was good at snuffing out a lot of chances in this game. But they just need to, you know, a little bit more fortitude and maybe to slightly reinvent the wheel, I'd, I would argue, for Jose Mourinho in this one. My highlight of this game, by the way, Graham, was Undombele when he did that Yaya Torre-style bust through the middle of the field. And he's got, um, he's got Reguillon on his left and Kane on his right. He decides to make the pass to uh, Reguillon for the uh, for the shot on goal, which doesn't work out so well. I wonder what's going through his mind there. I've got two options here. I've got world-class striker Harry Kane on my right, and then I've got my fullback on my left. Who's, who shall I let have the shot? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a peculiar decision. Yeah, Kane also looked to be in the better position for the, for the shot, for my money as well. But um, yeah, fantastic run. The other player, um, just to offer a little bit of a tangent, I, th- I thought Pedro Neto was really good for, for Wolves in this game. And I, I looked up his age at, um, during this game because I, I wasn't quite sure how old he was. He's 20 years old. I was sure he Ooh. was he was a little bit older than that. He is very, very exciting for 20 years old. Coincidentally, another person who is younger than I thought he was is uh, Leonard Stutsky, our old pal. He's 49. I was sure he, no. was, in his, he was in his... I thought I was sure he was in his 60s. <laughs> As someone on Twitter put it to me, that's vodka for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got the he's got the pipes of a thirty nine year old. We can argue that for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, Graham. I think that just about wraps up our Premier League weekend review. Unless there's anything else you wanted to add? Nope. Just uh, happy New Year to everyone for 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 when it comes, and uh, let's hope twenty twenty one is a little better than twenty twenty. Let's all hope that. Jose Mourinho very much included in that. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And I'll echo Graham's uh, call for a happy new year. That's it from us. We'll catch you next time. Thank you very much. Santa Claus won't make me happy. <laughs>